The Myth America Podcast, Episode 3, Chickadees and the Small Wonders in the Coming of Spring. you're here with me. So this morning, it's March. Suddenly, the light is different, and the air feels different. And while this has not been a particularly harsh winter in the Catskills this year, unlike last winter, which was kind of epic in its scope, it still has been winter, and it still has been closed down in the way that winter closes down. It has its own beauty, of course, but it it is a frozen world in a lot of ways. And I've become aware over the last several days that spring is on its way. And here in these mountains, winter and spring do a rather intimate dance until often well into April, sometimes even into May. And so we're not quite there yet, but oh boy, it's coming. And I thought that it would be fun today to dive into one of the symbols that at least in these mountains in this forest, is an echo, a sound, and an invitation into spring in a very particular way. And that's, of course, the birds that are coming and making sounds and singing for us. Often we think of robins as being the first sign of spring. There's a lot of language and a lot of story and a lot of meaning around robins showing back up. But here in these mountains, before the robins show up, there is a sound that starts. And if you are in the woods, you will hear it. And it's the sound of chickadees. Chickadees overwinter in the Catskills, as they do in much of the Northeast in the U.S. They don't fly south for the winter, and they are actually have some amazing things that they do to survive the winter that I'm going to dive into a little bit later this hour. But they hang out and they have this very typical chickadee dee 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 chickadee dee 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 sound that they make all through the winter. If you feed birds in the winter, you in all likelihood have chickadees at your bird feeder. They're the little guys with the black caps and the big shiny eyes, and they're delightful little birds. They're uh, titmice in the titmouse family, and they are one of the little birds that we think of almost universally as cute. They've got, their heads are a little big for their body, their bodies are tiny, and they're curious about everything. And I have memories as a kid of being connected to the chickadees in a variety of ways. And and one of the great things that I did as a kid, and in fact you still can do in various places around the world, is hold your hand out if chickadees have gotten used to you and have with birdseed on your hand and the chickadees will come alight on your hand and eat 
the sunflower seeds out of your fingers. And so they're, they're a bold little bird. And even though they are kind of ubiquitous, they're flashier than little sparrows. They're perkier than little sparrows in some ways. And they're a bird that has definitely woven their way into our imagination in a particular way. And so here they are throughout the winter, and they're a part of our lives. They're, they're a bird that doesn't forsake us over the winter like many do here in the, in the northeast of the United States. Lots of birds say, sayonara, we're going to head to warmer climes for the, for the winter, and we'll see you at some time later in the spring. But chickadees hang out. Chickadees are the tough little guys. Except something happens in late January into February, depending on where you are. And I heard it the first time mm, two weeks ago, I think, now. And suddenly the st- their song starts to change. And so instead of just hearing chickadee-dee-dee-dee, which is what you hear all winter, suddenly off... In the hills behind you, in the trees, you'll hear (whistles) this little Phoebe call or sweetie. One of the things I love about ornithologists is that they always come up with these wonderful uh, sort of translations for what bird songs might sound like or what they might mean, which is something that human beings have been doing for a very long time. And in fact, the name chickadee, there's some question as to whether it was a Native American word that got translated or which was uh, about the sound of the bird. It got translated by the by the settlers, the, the European settlers, not particularly way. Uh, Tsikili is one version of that in Cherokee. Uh, or if it just was settlers coming and hearing there aren't chickadees in England, and so uh, as the English settlers at least came, there was this little bird that had this very tr- particular sound, and they sound like they're saying chickadee. But in the spring, in the very early spring, in the late winter, as the light starts to change, as the days start to feel appreciably longer, suddenly there's light at 5 o'clock in the afternoon and 5.30 in the afternoon, and there's a sense that, okay, we've maybe made it through another one. You hear this little song (laughs) off behind you or in front of you. And these are the male chickadees starting to say, hey, baby, what you doing? It's springtime. So they are in this little song catching a sense of the light and the life and the life force of what spring means. And they beat the robins to the punch. They beat the other early spring sign here, which are the uh, uh, red-winged blackbirds. That's a sign on my hillside in the Catskills where my farm is. The two, okay, it's really here signs are when the catbirds begin to sing and when the peepers, spring peepers, begin to peep. But the chickadees are the inviters. They are, they're early to the party. And they're here. And so I thought I would celebrate them a little this morning and talk about them. They are, have some interesting things about their natural history. There's some really interesting things about who they are and how they think. And there's some wonderful stories, particularly in the Native American tradition, about chickadee and what chickadee means. And I'm going to share a Cherokee story with you. So these little guys with their little black caps and their curiosity, and they've got white cheeks and, and a bib, and 
they've got a little buff on their sides, and they are, they're curious, they're so aware. Many of the little birds don't really notice us, the wrens and the, the sparrows are aware of us, and, and will. And sometimes they will engage with people, particularly if they're somewhere where there's food outside regularly. Often, if you're at you know at a restaurant with an outside seating area, the sparrows will have learned that they can hang out and maybe get bits of French fries or hamburger buns or whatever you might toss at them. But they don't in the wild. They're not generally as engaged. And I think of all the little birds and and bigger birds even that the that I watch at my hillside. Certainly, the crows. I've got this ongoing relationship with with the crows. This uh, family, a murder of crows at my house, and we're we're learning each other. We're getting to know each other and I've been putting peanuts out for them and they now are aware of me and they'll they'll make a racket when I'm out in the morning if I've not remembered to bring peanuts to them and they're not quite to the point where they're willing to get them while I'm out there but they're they circle and they hang out and we have you know, we're beginning to have conversations and crows actually are smart enough that they recognize people they have uh, different vocalizations for uh, they communicate differently. Uh, you know, they're not just, they don't just use one caw. There's actually a fairly complex language that they use. So we're learning that. But the chickadees actually do some of that as well. And they are, I think, of the other birds that kind of hang out on the edges between the city and suburbia and the forest and farms, they're probably the little guys who are paying the closest attention. And they find bird feeders quickly, and they find people quickly, and they find a sense of comfort being cohabitants, I think, with people fairly easily. And they they come quickly to the feeder, and then they zip away. They're not some some birds will come land and they'll eat you out of house and home or the or the furry long-tailed squirrel birds <laughs> will if they can will will empty your feeder but chickadees come they'll grab a seed and then they'll pop somewhere else often to a tree nearby to to eat there so there there's a lot of movement when chickadees are in town and they're they're gregarious little birds and they often are in uh, flocks. They they tend not to be solo birds. And and more often than not, even if when you hear that wonderful Phoebe whistle, you'll hear one and then you'll hear another and then you'll hear another and they're all slightly different pitched. So there there are, you know, tenor tenor chickadees and baritone chickadees and bass chickadees that are all singing their sense of of delight in the fact that the world is getting to be spring and that maybe there are some girls out there that might pay attention to them. And they have, uh, as they arrive in their flock, one of the things that I really love about them is that they they have this wonderful sort of bouncy flight. They're, they're, they're perky little guys. And so they're, they have lots of energy. And when they show up in your yard, you're very aware that they're there if you're paying any attention at all. And they bring this sort of sense of, yeah, okay, we're here, we're getting down to it, we're busy, got stuff to do, we're going to do it now. And I think there's a wonderful kind of energy in that, that they are, that they're they're kind of, they're, they're playmates on an interesting level, I think. So, and they can be found really anywhere in, in habitat that has any kind of trees or any kind of shrubs. So residential neighborhoods, woodlots, forest, farms, even in urban areas where there are some uh, parks, they often nest in birch trees or alder trees. And so if you've got those around in your yard or in your 
neighborhood, watch watch for them because they may they may in fact be nesting up there. So here are these cool little guys who hang out and they make spring in some way, even though they've stayed here throughout the winter. One of the things, there are a couple of things that chickadees do that are really interesting. One is they can actually lower their body temperature during the winter so they can survive really cold winters. You know, you look at these tiny little guys and those tiny little feet and you think, how do these birds not freeze to death? We had a winter night not too long ago, maybe three, four weeks ago now, mid-February, so actually not that long ago, where it got to 17 below zero where we are, which is pretty darn cold, and it was windy. So it was you know, big wind chill factors, and, and which I must admit, as, a, as an aside, I can't decide if I actually like knowing that or not. There's a certain point, I think, at which just saying, yeah, it's really cold out is probably more helpful than saying, and it was a wind chill factor of 9,000 degrees below zero. We kind of like to uh, we get excited about our weather in this era. Maybe that's actually... Maybe that's actually a show. I think it'd be interesting because there's some there's some mythologizing I think that we do around weather and its impacts. Uh, maybe I will talk about here in one of the days coming up, weeks coming up. But so, but here are these little tiny birds that overwinter, like many things don't, and they've got this biological ability to adapt their body temperature such that they don't have to keep themselves as warm when the weather gets really cold. And this is not as dramatic as a toad, for example, who basically goes into a state of cryogenic suspended animation over the winter and freezes and then re-thaws and wakes back up in the spring, which is amazing. I can't understand how that works. But So they're not quite that wild. But it's a pretty amazing biological thing to be able to do. Think about if human beings were able to do that. Like, we can't. We, we, are, we are so, you know, the source of so much of our ingenuity and energy and work is done making sure that we can figure out how we don't freeze to death or boil over. You know, we don't have a particularly good heat regulating system, particularly for lower temperatures. And so we spend a lot of time figuring out how to put more layers on ourselves or find spaces that we can bring the the heat up around us rather than being able to adapt our body to function in colder weather. And that's totally not literally true, I guess, in that if you you do get adapted, certainly I'm sure you've had the experience that you've gone out and it's been really warm and the temperature drops and you think, oh my gosh, it's really freezing out here. And you go back inside and you look at the thermometer and it's, you know, 40. When it's been 80, that's really cold. On the other hand, when it's been... 10 degrees out, and then suddenly it's 40, you think, oh, this is really warm. I actually watched a guy running with his shirt off the other day, and it was about 45, 48 degrees out, and he, he obviously had adapted to it being cold and, and was uh, feeling this warmth. I had a friend one time who lived in Alaska for a number of years, and she told me that the day she knew she needed to move back to the lower 48 was the day she went out, and it was so warm. It was this beautiful warm spring day, just absolutely glorious, and she went out and sunbathed for the afternoon, and when she went inside, it was 40 
degrees, and it had felt so warm to her that she'd spent the whole day out with basically no clothes on. And she thought, you know, this is just not normal. So we do a little bit of that, but not as well as the chickadee does. So here's this little bird that we think of as being kind of this ubiquitous little friendly, kind of cute little guy that hangs out in our yard, and he has this amazing ability to survive by adapting his body temperature. But he does a couple things that are even more amazing. One is chickadees have an extraordinarily good spatial memory, much better than humans. And they use this to figure out and remember and relocate where they've cached food, where they've stored food. So they are, that's another way that they adapt because the other, the other issue, if you are a small creature that needs to eat a lot to keep your system humming that, and eat fairly, you know, kind of continuously, that's another big deal if you're living in a place where suddenly there's not as much food around anymore. And so figuring out where you hide it, first hiding it, thinking, knowing, knowing to do that in one way or another, and then having this memory that allows you to remember exactly where it was, that's a lot for a little bird whose, you know, its brain is, is tiny, right? Think about how big chickadees are. Think about how big their heads are. That's a pretty amazing piece of little brain power in a little tiny bird body. So the other really amazing part about that that is the seriously cool thing about chickadee brains is as in the autumn they roam their territory and they their territories are about 10 square miles so that's pretty big again for think about little teeny tiny bird 10 miles how often do you traverse 10 miles under your own power in the course of a day not very often most of us So they're out in the autumn and they're gathering seeds and they're storing them and they have hundreds of hiding places that they use in a 10-mile radius. So this isn't just a question of a bird saying, oh, there's a plant and I'll, I'll, you know, stuff some seeds there and that'll be my spot. These are little birds covering an enormous piece of territory using hundreds of places. So this is a spatial memory that is pretty powerful. And throughout the winter, they spend the winter going back to all of those places. And so that got some biology f- researchers that were our bird researchers and brain researchers kind of interested because that's a pretty powerful thing. But some folks have started to look at this, and there's a, a scientist from, uh, he's a um, a biologist at Lehigh University and an anatomist. He's a songbird guy. His name is Colin Saldana. And Colin Saldana thought, you know, this is pretty amazing that these little birds can do this, and I wonder how. And so he began to work with birds, and what he discovered is that in the fall, as chickadees are gathering their seeds, as they're storing their seeds, as they're building out this buffet that they can go back to in these multiple locations, hundreds of locations throughout the next, throughout the next several months. The brain of a chickadee actually grows. It's hippocampus, which is the part of your brain that, that, that manages spatial organization and memory. 
in most vertebrate animals. We've got a hippocampus here, and we, we are kind of driven, human beings are driven by our frontal lobe. We, we are into the into the, the front analysis kind of things, uh, brain functions, and we, we really think those are important. But the hippocampus is really, in many ways, the mythological part of the brain. This is the memory and sensory part of the brain and how we process the deep stuff in a lot of ways. So in a chickadee, its hippocampus actually expands in volume by about 30% every fall. And it gets new nerve cells. So in, hippo, in uh, song, songbirds, the hippocampus is, is in the forebrain right beneath the skull, and it, it, which is a different location in mammals and human beings, among, among other mammals. Are, the hippocampus is, is located beneath the brain cortex, but the hippocampus is in a place where it actually can expand. And so throughout the winter, it's using the superbrain, 30%. Can you imagine that? Every fall. God, wouldn't that be fabulous? As we all went back to school in the fall, if our brains all got smarter and then we could, you know, kind of play our way through summer. 30%. It expands throughout the winter, and then when it doesn't need to remember as much, it contracts again in the spring. So. What Colin Saldana has says is he's thinking there that his the hypothesis that he has and the researchers he's working with have is that this growth happens when the bird needs it. So somehow systemically, the bird's brain knows that it's going to need to be able to remember more stuff over the winter than it will over the summer. And I think it's fascinating that it does this every year, that it doesn't just equip the chickadee with a bigger brain all the time. And I think it's a powerful, if we sort of step out and we look at this mythologically a little bit, because I've been really talking about natural history, but if you step out and you think about that, there's something really amazing, I think, in the metaphor of how our natural systems are designed, even in the brain of a little songbird, to to adapt and and change and really be in this intimate relationship with where we live and how we survive all the time. And we tend to think, I think, as human beings, that it's kind of there's a baseline and it's all sort of there. And if any changes happen, it's coming mostly from us on this sort of linear way that we move forward and we grow and we expand. And for me, what this opens up is a really wonderful sense of, well, maybe that's not exactly always true. And maybe maybe we expand and contract in a variety of ways over the course of a year or a week or a month or a lifetime based on what we need to do. In some ways it becomes like adapting to that colder weather. And I'm sure if you think about it, you can think about times when you've expanded into what needed to happen whether that was you had to be bigger mentally than you thought you were. Uh, you know, may, maybe it's a, you're on speaking. Maybe you're on doing a radio interview, for example, or speaking in front of a group of people, or stepping into a, a, a job interview or a presentation or something where you've got to feel bigger than you usually do. And it's amazing because we actually can do that. Or maybe you are in a moment where you need to feel tougher and stronger than you usually do. Or 
any any sort of attribute that we carry with us, I think we expand and contract. And there are other times when you think, I don't have it in me to do that. I am I am contracted. And maybe that's fatigue and maybe that's sort of you know, defined biological processes. But I think on a metaphorical level, there's something really interesting about the idea of being able to expand into what we need. And songbirds are the first vertebrates that this research has been done on and found that they have brain growth during adulthood. So we don't think of, we think of, again, you hit adulthood, we think of most mammals, uh, mammals, we think of, of most uh, vertebrate animals, in, including us, that brain develops from infancy, you know, birth through adulthood, and then there's this moment where we've kind of hit the far wall, and there we are. And actually, this process of building more neurons, uh, neurogenesis is the scientific word for it, is opening up this idea that actually maybe we're wrong about that idea and maybe that the stories we've told ourselves about how our brains function and how they grow and what they do and what they don't do once we've reached adulthood may not be the complete story. And so what Colin Saldana is doing is looking at the neurogenesis in the black-capped chickadee and he's hoping that by doing this he'll understand how hormones actually guide brain's development and reorganization, particularly the hormone estrogen in the growth of the hippocampus. So this is a hormonal, this is making perimenopause make so much sense to me. Maybe this is why we don't remember things, that this connection between neurogenesis and estrogen, maybe there's something there. I, they certainly there there actually are some scientific suggestions that the this connection between estrogen and being able to make estrogen in not ovary not only ovaries but actually in the brain itself in the hippocampus actually is maybe why these brains can expand so wow right that's i just i think that's truly utterly amazing and so because chickadees have been studied, the behavior of chickadees have been studied so completely, going in and trying to do some of this work on neurogenesis and look at how brains and neurons actually do expand becomes not only a place to better understand how this little creature intersects with the world, but also begins us to open up begins to open up for us a sense of wow there maybe is a whole set of things that we don't understand in the stories that we're telling ourselves about how our brains work and in fact could be a way to start understanding how neurogenerative diseases can that affect humans most of them are connected to the hippocampus thinking about for example alzheimer's your hippocampus isn't functioning correctly. When you've got profound memory loss like that, there's something that is derailing in your hippocampus. And so it could be that these little birds might help us remember the way into remembering. So I thought what I would do next is share with you a story from, uh, just a little short story from John Burroughs. John Burroughs is a Roxbury native, which is in the Catskills. And he, if you don't know John Burroughs' work, he, it, it's worth finding. He's one of the 
exquisitely brilliant naturalists of that emerged out of the 19th century. He was kind of time-wise a contemporary of John Muir's. John Muir wrote about the grandness in nature and spent a lot of time, as you probably know, on the West Coast writing about the Yosemite and the redwoods and, and sort of the enormousness was hugely involved in helping America to see that national parks were important and meant something and that these amazing majestic places in nature needed to be protected. John Burroughs was equally popular in his day and I think equally influential, had a great number of friends among political leaders and economic leaders and but he wrote about the intimacy of nature, and I think he's been a little bit forgotten because he's not big and bold like John Muir. But his reflections, I think, are really quite exquisite. So he, here's a glimpse into how chickadees live and how they intersect and interact with people that I find really delightful. And this is John Burroughs from a short story called Chickadee, simply. He writes, the chickadees we have always with us. They are like the evergreens among trees and plants. Winters has no terrors for them. They are properly wood birds, but the groves and orchards know them also. Did they come near my cabin for better protection, or did they by chance find a little cavity in a tree there that suited them? Branch builders and ground builders are easily accommodated, but the chickadee must find a cavity, and a small one at that. The woodpeckers make a cavity when a suitable trunk or tree branch is found, but the chickadee with its small, sharp beak rarely does so. It usually smooths and deepens one already formed. This a pair did a few yards from my cabin. The opening was into the heart of a little sassafras tree about four feet from the ground. Day after day, the birds took turns in deepening and enlargening the cavity. A soft, gentle hammering for a few moments in the heart of a little tree, and then the appearance of the worker at the opening with chips in his or her beak. They changed off every little while, one working while the other gathered food. Absolute equality of the sexes, both in plumage and in duty, seems to prevail among these birds, as among few other species. During the preparations for housekeeping, the birds were hourly seen and heard, but as soon as the first egg was laid, all this was changed, they suddenly became very shy and quiet, and had it not been for the new egg that was added on each day, one would have concluded that they had abandoned the nest. There was a precious secret there now that must be well kept. After incubation began, it was only by watching that I could get a glimpse of one of the birds as it came quickly to feed or to relieve the other. One day, a lot of Vassar girls came to visit me, Vassar College, and I led them out to the little sassafras to see the chickadee's nest. The sitting bird kept her place as head after head with its nodding plumes and millinery appeared above the opening to her chamber, and a pair of inquisitive eyes peered down upon her. But I saw that she was about ready to play her little trick to frighten them away. Presently, I heard a faint explosion at the bottom of the cavity when the peeping girl jerked her head back quickly with the exclamation, why, it spit at me. The trick of the chickadee on such occasions is apparently to draw in its breath until its form perceptibly swells and then give forth a quick, explosive sound like an escaping jet of steam. One involuntarily closes his eyes and jerks back his head when this happens. The girls, to their great amusement, 
provoked this bird into this pretty outburst of her impatience two or three times. But as the ruse failed of its effect, the bird did not keep it up, but let the laughing faces gaze until they were satisfied. I was much interested in seeing a brood of chickens reared on my premises venture on their, venture on their first flight. Their heads had been seen at the door of their dwelling, a cavity in the limb of a pear tree, at intervals of two or three days. Evidently, they liked the looks of the great outside world, and one evening, just before sundown, one of them came forth. His first flight was of several yards to a locust, where he alighted upon an inner branch, and after some chirping and calling, proceeded to arrange his plumage and compose himself for the night. I watched him until it was nearly dark. He didn't appear at all to be afraid there to be alone in the tree, but just put his head under his wing and settled down for the night as if it was just what he had always been doing. There was a heavy shower just a few hours later, but in the morning he was there, upon his perch, in good spirits. I happened to be passing in the morning when another one came out. He hopped out upon a limb, shook himself, and chirped and called loudly. After some moments an idea seemed to strike him, his attitude changed, his form straightened up, and a thrill of excitement seemed to run through him. I knew what it all meant, and something had whispered to the bird, Fly! With a spring and a cry, he was in the air and made good headway to a near hemlock. Others left in a similar matter during that day, and all the next, and by then, all were out. That's John Burroughs on Chickadees. It's a wonderful glimpse into how carefully he watches. And I think one of the things that little birds like this invite us to do is to be in that place of watching. We are often so moving so quickly, so overwhelmed by whatever the day has that we can't possibly finish it all. And our mind is racing from next thing to next thing. And to spend a moment being aware of something as small and seemingly insignificant as a chickadee, I think is a wonderful invitation into a whole lot of things. And part of what I love about that piece by Burroughs is his sense of relationship with these birds. And he was not, you know, anthropomorphizing that relationship. He wasn't trying to make friends with them per se, but he was very aware that they were they were, you know, in a way living together. And this little female was willing to tolerate, as she was sitting on her eggs, all of these young ladies. And you can imagine from his description of the plumes in the millinery. So this is, you know, 1880s, 1890s. So these are young uh, young college students from Vassar College who've come out to see, to see the mountains with the great tutelage of this nat- naturalist that it was a big deal. And they've arrived not in what we would be wearing, but in this wonderful Edwardian dress with big hats and big plumes, singularly inappropriate for wandering the mountains in the Catskills, but somehow they managed to do it. And so to, you can imagine being this little bird, seeing not just this human face, which is big and odd-looking and doesn't have a beak, but has this enormous bird-like thing sitting on its head. What that chickadee must have thought to see all of those young women peering into its nest. But then after making an effort to be intimidating, just thought, okay, well, you know, they seem harmless enough and they'll eventually move on, which they did. So, which I love. I just think there's, there's a wonderful image in that. But I think the, the, that sense of 
taking the time to look at something that intimate and see how, as you step out your front door, the birds in your yard respond to you because they're aware, they're paying attention that you're there, and maybe they all fly off in a flurry. But if they're birds that have been hanging out at your house over the winter, particularly if you've been putting bird feed out for them, they, they, their sense of comfort with you will shift a little. And so if you have a moment today, even as you get, as you come out of your front door, as you come out of your car, wherever you might be, just stop for a moment and look at what's around you and see if there are birds near you and what they are and what they're doing. And are they birds that have been here all winter and are they birds that are starting to emerge? The robins actually are coming. I haven't seen one yet, but I've seen on Facebook that they're, they've, they've been spotted. They've been, been, uh, photographs have been taken. There's, there's photographic evidence that they are back, uh, at least in some places in the mountains here. And so taking a look and and seeing what might be around you and what might be moving and what might be breathing and talking to you in one way or another I think is a wonderful sort of meditative process in its own little way that can shake us out of whatever the ding 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 is the, the sort of slot machines of our brains that go on on a moment by moment basis and invite us to land and breathe and open and slow down for a second and take a look at what the world is doing around us and what the stories are that are sitting in the day as it unfolds around us and how we're engaging with those stories. And I have a sense of enchantment about that. I really, I really am enchanted by the idea of doing that and being, because we are so often caught up with the big stuff. And I think it's not surprising that John Muir has a, a public reputation and a popularity based on on the grandness of of what he was working and that we've kind of forgotten about John Burroughs because we like that bigness. We like to think of ourselves in America as big thinkers and big doers and it's a big country and we like majestic, we like big views. Uh, when, When visitors come to visit me often, when they want to go hiking, they want the big view hike. And, and I get that. They're pretty spectacular. But I often try to steer them at least once while they're here into a place that's actually about the small intimate experience. And so you actually get to stop and slow down and look at what the that wild orchid that might be blooming near the trail, the lady slipper that might be blooming, or the trillium, or how the creek moves as it comes down the hill or how the tree cover changes a little and how that light changes and how that changes your sense of where you are in the forest and when we find ways to find that kind of intimacy and vision and 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 awareness really of looking at the world around us can build in the same way that the neurons expand chickadees' brains and expand their capacity to remember where things are. It can build our sense of meaning and understanding of the world around us and our own engagement with things in really powerful ways. And it also can be a way to break whatever the big churning mental psychological rhythms that are going on in our brains and our psyches that seem to grab us 
and carry us onward and and we sometimes feel like we don't have a vote that we're just kind of along for the ride with whatever big stuff is going on in our lives whether whether it's good or bad or somewhere in between that we feel like kind of we're passengers and i think taking a moment and having a little breath and seeing what the chickadee is doing for example hearing what he or she is singing or whatever else might be coming up around you helps break that momentum and helps open a sense of our own agency in the world in a very kind of lovely, subtle but lovely way because we can choose what we are being aware of in that moment. We can choose what we can bring with us. I had a great experience of taking a a wonderful Tai Chi class at Esalen, which is a, a, resort, or a retreat center out on the west coast. It's in Big Sur. It's right on the Pacific. It is a spectacular location. It's in a location actually that was sacred to the Native American community pre, pre-settlement Native American community. There are sulfur springs, hot springs there right next to the water. It's a really remarkable place. And there's a deck out sort of set right along the edge of the cliff. And that I took was doing a workshop on mythology and Joseph Campbell there with my friends from the Joseph Campbell Foundation a few years ago. And there's a guy there named Al Huang, uh, uh, Liang Al Huang is his name, and uh, Al is his Americanized nickname. And he has been a martial artist and a dancer for many, many years, and he's a Tai Chi guy. And one of the exercises that he does there is invites you to, with your arm, close your eyes and with your arm and your breath sort of collect in the memory of something that has happened recently that is lovely and that you want to carry with you and maybe it's an image of something or a scent or a sound or a conversation or a bird that you've seen or something that is those little a little gem that that when we notice them and remember them give us that flush of pleasure, that flush of all things being possible. And for me, this, it it was a powerful little meditative exercise, and I use it a lot, because I can get caught in the, in the grind really easily, and I monkey mind about stuff, and I'm got too much to do, and I'm moving too fast, and I'm tightly wound, and I get barky and sharp and snappy, because I get consumed by that. And just a simple exercise like that, and they, they're small things, they're little things, that you, in his invitation in this exercise is that you literally sort of pull them into your body so you can carry them with you through the day. You can choose to carry with you the energies and the images and the sounds and the sense and the emotions that you want to. And I think that that's really extraordinary. And I think that having this in, uh, relationship with this little chickadee Singing and the memory that that evokes for me. I hear that song and I have these powerful memories of being a kid in central Pennsylvania and sitting on my parents' front stoop and starting to feel the earth coming back to life as the song was singing, feeling the sun on my face, being out in the woods in Pennsylvania and watching the chickadees move through the woods and through the edges of the of the field. We used to have a, a little piece of land out in the country and that in a deeply pragmatic way we named Narnia. So I, I come from a long line of, of 
fantasists on one level or another. But we would go there throughout the year, and so we had this very intimate sort of relationship with this land throughout the seasons, and it's part of why I wanted to move to the Catskills, was to try to recapture some of that intimacy with the land around me and the memories that I had. So for me, the sound of the tickety is is one of those memories that triggers this whole raft of feelings about what I thought mattered when I was a kid. And the older I get, the more convinced I am that actually those those really are the things that matter. And a lot of the stuff that came up in the meantime aren't necessarily as important. So a little meditative thing, a little meditative idea about how you might invite the chickadee into your world. I promised another story, and this is actually a, a mythology from the Cherokee community. This is a retelling of it by two women named Amy Friedman and Meredith Johnson. You can find it online. I, can, I will post it on my Myth America Facebook page for you, which is at facebook.com slash mythamericaradio. And the title of the story is Spearfinger, which is about a fairly terrifying character. You ready? Here we go. People still hear shrieks in the mountains like the cackling of notorious, the notorious one who, once upon a time, could appear in any shape she wished. Spearfinger was her name, and she was a master of disguise. She could look like your friend, like a fish or a bird or a mouse or like the kindest person you had ever known. But underneath those many disguises, she was a monster whom no one could harm. Arrows, knives, and rocks bounced off her body, for it was made of stone. Parents warned their children, stay in the lodge, they said. Utlunta, for that is what they called her, is on the trails looking for children just like you. But children, of course, do not always listen. She was most dangerous in the autumn, for those were the days when she could walk out of the mountains, hidden in smoke from the brush fires and bonfires. And one day, late in October, out of that smoke she appeared, disguised as an old woman. Please help, she said. I need rest, to a group of children who were sitting around a smoking fire. And no one knew that below, beneath her blowing cape she hid her dangerous stone finger. The children saw only a withered old woman, and naturally they offered her a seat. And then she smiled at a little girl. Sit on my lap and I will brush your hair, she said. The innocent girl sat on her lap, and then with her special stone finger, spear finger stabbed the child's side. The girl never felt a thing. Later the girl walked home, and that night she grew very sick. And the villagers knew spear finger had struck again. The next day, a little boy fell, and a kindly old woman swooped in and said, Oh, come to me, I will kiss away your pain. And the little boy ran into the woman's arm, never suspecting that this was Spearfinger. Sometimes, after she had attacked the child, she took on that child's appearance. She skipped home, and there in the lodge she stayed until dark when she could attack other children before she disappeared back into the mountains. One, when one village was warned, Spearfinger had hurled boulders onto other boulders and created bridges from one mountain to the next. She traveled across the land this way, striking villages when they did not expect her. Now and then, a hunter spotted her up in the mountain peaks, eagles her only companion, soaring overhead. But no one could stop her. Month after month, year after year, she struck at the children. At long last, the people called a grand council, 
We must stop her, they agreed, and the medicine men spoke. She comes in disguise, and she is drawn to smoke, and she sings, and her flesh is stone. There is only one way to catch her. We will dig a pit, we will cover it with brush, and we will chase her until she falls into our trap. And then what? the people asked. Well, somehow we will find a way to rid ourselves of her forever, the medicine men answered. And so they made a huge bonfire, and sure enough, when Spearfinger saw the smoke, she cackled and came down into the village, leaving a trail of stones and scattered brush in her wake. When the medicine men saw her coming, they cried to the young men, Run! She must chase you! But that isn't her, one young man said. That's only an old woman. Some said they even recognized her, and they were very confused. She looked helpless, they protested, standing still. One of the medicine men threw his spear, and when it hit her stone body, it shattered. And then the young man understood this was no human being. Spearfinger shrieked and wagged her stone finger at them, and then she rushed forward. The young men ran, and Spearfinger chased them. And just as the medicine men had planned, she did not see the pit, and so she fell, howling, as she slid to the bottom. She was trapped in the pit, and everyone shot arrows at her, but nothing could pierce her flesh. I'll get all of you, all of you, she screamed. She collected the spears and the arrows and began to climb out of the pit. What will we do, the people wailed. What will we do? That's when the birds came. Only two, the titmouse and the chickadee. They flew through the smoke, and the people called out, How do we kill her? And the titmouse sang, Oh, no, 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 and the villagers thought it was singing heart, so they aimed at the place they thought her heart must be. Spearfinger laughed as the arrows bounced off her chest. Liar, the warriors cried at the titmouse and struck at it. The titmouse flew away and vanished forever. But the chickadee flew to the witch's hand, and there it sang. So the people aimed at that hand, and true enough, that is where Spearfinger's heart was. One more howl, and the people watched as Spearfinger sank to the ground, dead at last. Way up in the mountains, another creature made of stone, stone skin, heard Spearfinger's shriek echoing off every peak. And later, when he saw her hand impaled on a post, he knew what had happened. And he also understood that he, too, had been warned. But he only shrugged. Today, the chickadee honor the, the Cherokee honor the chickadee, calling it Siklili, or truth teller. And sometimes on a chilly, misty night in October, if you listen closely, you will hear a shriek coming from the mountains, and you must wonder if the sound comes from stone skin, and if you will strike again, and where. That is the Cherokee story of Spearfinger. So, wow, that's a wild story. So here's a scary shape-shifting creature made of stone who goes after little kids. It's a great, great scary story, right? You go, go, for, go for the things that really terrify you. And I love the fact that there are two birds and only, it was the birds that came to show up. So here is, I think, in this story, working this idea that sometimes the scariest things can be fought with the smallest things. Sometimes meeting, our instinct is to think if something is big and terrifying, we need to be as big and terrifying as it to go back. And the warriors were of no use, and even really the medicine men were of no use. Their clever plan, they couldn't outthink her, they couldn't capture her, they couldn't outstrength her. And what they needed was the power of 
a little bird. And the titmouse layer of that story is interesting, partially because titmice are, or chickadees are part of the titmouse family. And usually what we think of titmice in this country is uh, they're little birds with a little crest. They're also very cute birds. They're, they're like chickadees. They're, they're, uh, they're sparkly little birds. They're, they're gray body with a, little, with a little crest and big shiny eyes. They're sparkly eyes. And they are also a friendly bird. But in this story, whatever the titmouse's intent was, and in the telling of this story, it sounds like the people didn't understand what the titmouse was saying, and so they misunderstand and they chased it off because they thought it had been lying. And so there's something, I think, in how we how we do understand things and how we can blame other folks if we don't get it. Like if the communication doesn't work, somehow it was the titmouse's fault that they didn't understand what the titmouse was saying and they assumed that the titmouse was lying. Though I don't know that that was true. I think that they just didn't understand. But in this, what they needed was a bird who could tell them the truth in a way that they would get and they would understand. And that's what the chickadee did. So this little bird is seen as a truth teller. And there's a variety of stories throughout Native American traditions where that's how it's described, that the chickadee tells the truth, which I think is kind of marvelous and fascinating. That here's this little bird that holds something as grand as the truth. And we, we again, it's the size thing, right? We tend to think of that as being a huge thing. And often the way into truth is the little thing, the little voice, the little image, the little bit of courage, the little bit of awareness, that that can make the difference. And so I think in the same way that this little whistle that isn't grandiose, it isn't big and cawing, it isn't loud and brash, it isn't the glorious flute of the, the hermit thrush, or the wood thrush that comes later in the spring into the summer. But it's a little kind of workaday song. But somehow it's so echoing and that it so invites us, I think, to remember spring is coming, to remember that the world is changing. And so this big, enormous elemental force that's coming and changing back from dormancy into the life and the fertileness and the power and the drive and all of the living that happens in such a short time from spring to fall. Particularly in this part of the world, I'm so aware that so much of the world here spends a good part of its year sleeping, that this little bird and its little song actually becomes the thing that opens that up. So I invite you this week to think about where those little moments of truth are and where those little voices are that you can invite into your world and think about how that changes the bigger things and how you can use that even as a point of maybe meditating a little bit on who you are and what the world is around you and what the stories are that you're telling yourselves. I'm Lee Melander, and 
thank you so much for joining me today. Myth America is sponsored by Spillian, a place to revel in the Catskill Mountains of New York. You can find out more about Myth America, Spillian, and me at mythamericaradio.com. Please stop by and share your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. 